What the If is brought to you by listeners like you, thanks to our Patreon members, patreon.com slash whattheif. Go there now and find out how you can become a member and get all kinds of cool rewards. And thank you for supporting our mission for science education and science fun. Welcome to What the If. Billion dollar laser edition. Three and a half billion dollars. And more. Three and a half. It's a half billion dollars. That's right. Just keep those billions coming. Get all your billions. Keep them coming. Keep them coming. That's just a tease. Just a tease for what our if will be, which we'll get to in just a minute. But uh, I want to introduce our um, our co-pilots, uh, our fearless leaders, uh, who are here with us every week. Um, Gabby Panicia, virologist from Rockefeller University, is here. Happy, Gab. Happy. <laughs> I combined Gabby and how are you? How are you? <laughs> Got to get this I'm coffee doing going. Good. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it is raining, assumably all over New York. That we're all experiencing it, but mm-hmm. I've been wrestling with weird window leaks. So before we started recording, yeah. I had to run around with a bunch of paper towels to make sure uh, nothing would zap my computer oh, wow. uh, while we were recording. Oh, that sounds good. Tell Rockefeller yeah, to get their, uh, get their caulking uh, up to par. Yeah, yeah, I've emailed them a couple times. Should be, we'll we see. be worried that the same people <laughs> that can't seal the windows against rain are also sealing your lab against like bioagents? <laughs> you know, I, I would like to think that all their energy is dedicated to that, and therefore <laughs> my windows are the lowest possible priority next to, like, you know, BSL-3 pathogens. So, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll cut yeah. them some slack. All right, yeah. that's a very generous interpretation. Yes. Uh, those lovely sonorous tones are uh, belong to uh, Professor Matthew Stanley of New York University. Howard's... Uh, how is thing, how, how, how's the caulking down there at NYU? Uh, we're pretty well sealed up, I think. Um, only minor flooding. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, a news story this morning. Speaking of sealant, Gabby, I don't know if you, you were on when I was mentioning this before the show. Uh, I read a news story this morning that... Uh, at a hotel in Berlin, at the Radisson Hotel, I believe I'm getting that right, uh, they had in their gigantic atrium of this hotel, they had the world's largest cylindrical uh, aquarium, and it burst. <gasps> and all the water oh, no. and all the fish went out into Alexander Plotz. So. That's, I have just a five-gallon aquarium, and that's a nightmare. Because <laughs> uh, I did have a 10-gallon aquarium break on me, and it was a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, my roommate grabbed the fish with her bare hands and put it in a Tupperware container, and <laughs> we spent the rest of the day mopping up fish water. Um, wow. So the concept of the world's largest cylindrical aquarium, ugh, that, yeah. uh, that gives me actual nightmares. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a disaster. Um, so there's that's another story. I feel like that's... Everything's going to smell so bad. That's good. Fish water is, it's a smell. Oh, yeah. Um, and the, 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 the only thing that's comical about it is Alexander Platz is like the fanciest street. That's like the Fifth Avenue of Berlin. The idea. 
luxurious world. It's a terrible thing. Not the worst thing to have happened in Berlin. but uh, That is correct. Yeah. Fun. 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 Um, so uh, we have a really exciting, really exciting if this week, which I'm, I'm very excited to get to. Um, and I will, I will spare no use of the word excited. I will, I'll use it as many times as I need. Um, when I read this uh, or saw this on the news, I thought, we've got to get Professor Stanley on the case. And he is here for us. Uh, so this is uh, ripped from the headlines. Um, I'll read the headline here, and then and then we will we'll introduce an if based mm-hmm. on it. Um, uh, the headline is this is from the New York Times. Uh, Kenneth Chang, <clears throat> excuse me, Kenneth Chang, great science writer for the Times. And the headline was major fusion energy breakthrough to be announced by scientists. It has since been announced. It has. Researchers working with, it has, yes. Researchers working with lasers at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory are expected to say they made a major advance that could lead to future energy sources. So this article comes from before the event. So um, Professor Stanley, can you tell us what, uh, what was it? What did they actually announce? They have harnessed the power of the sun. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. So stars, including our sun, uh, run on fusion, um, which is this cool, quirky thing where if you mash together two small atoms to make one bigger atom, um, there's a little bit of mass that goes missing, and that turns into energy. So uh, at the center of our sun, the pressures and the temperatures are so gigantic uh, that hydrogen is constantly crashing into other bits of hydrogen uh, and turning into helium. And that little bit of missing mass turns into heat and light, and that's what actually lights up the sun. So we've been trying to master this process for, I guess, almost 100 years now, actually. Um, The problem is that it's hard to replicate the sun here on Earth. Right. Um, because uh-huh. you yes. need kind of really makes some sense. Yeah, that's right. It's <laughs> I guess that's fairly intuitive. Right. Um, so uh, as I should say, as is always the case with humans, our first attempt at harnessing a new energy source um, was turned into a weapon. Right. So this is the the H bomb back in the day, the hydrogen bomb um, uses fusion uh, to liberate lots of energy. And it's so much more powerful than a fission bomb of the type you know, used at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that those kinds of bombs are igniters for a hydrogen bomb. Right? They're literally just the spark plugs for a oh. fission bomb. <clears throat> so that's how much more powerful. So the bomb that was used at Hiroshima. Yeah. Wow. yeah, so you measure um, uh, yields of traditional atomic bombs like the Hiroshima bomb um, in kilotons, equivalent of thousands of tons of Uh um, TNT. You measure the yield of fusion bombs, of H-bombs, in megatons, millions of tons. Uh, So that's how fantastically powerful (laughs) fusion is. Um, Yeah, that's terrifying. It is terrifying, right? So that's... um, 
uh, yeah, and if you if you want to play with that a little bit, uh, my friend Alex Wellerstein's uh, website Nuke Map um, will let you put down nuclear weapons on various sizes uh, overlaid on maps, um, <laughs> so you can see how how big a bomb will will do. Um, anyway, um, so uh, but then after after we built the bomb, people were like, okay, maybe we can use this energy source for other things. So in the same way that we have um, nuclear power plants that run on nuclear fission, so any commercial power plant you encounter runs on nuclear fission, um, people thought back in the 50s that, well, we should build fusion power plants too, because it yields huge amounts of energy. But it turned out to be a lot more difficult. Um, And the the, the challenge is um, containing the fusion reaction so it doesn't turn into a bomb but also getting it to sustain long enough that it gives a useful amount of energy. Um, So I said, we've been trying this for about 70 years, um, and it's not that hard to make fusion in the laboratory. You can can do this with, um, uh, it's traditionally done with magnetic fields. There's a device called a tokamak, which is basically a big hydrogen donut. Um, and then you kind of tighten up the <laughs> magnetic fields to force the hydrogen atoms together, and then they fuse. Um, the problem is that it takes a huge amount of energy to run a device like a tokamak, and then you get very little energy out. So you can you can make fusion happen. That's not that difficult. Uh, the trick is that it takes more energy to start the reaction than you get out of the reaction. So it's like if it took more gas to drive to the gas station than you could get at the gas station. Like that's a losing proposition, right? Yeah. 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 So I'm going to announce our if, but yeah. that was something I forgot to do last week and, and, uh, astute listeners, you know, those who are really attentive to protocol, uh, will have noticed <laughs> last week that I, I skipped this, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but hopefully most people didn't. However, we do like to announce the if, and this week the if is very simple. It's actually going to be what what the if we could do something which which uh, was done, and Matt will continue to explain mm-hmm. what happens and what were the ramifications of that. But uh, wh- what would I call it? What what was what what do we say was done? Oh, what, so the the technical words, term. What the scientists for... asked themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess scientists asked themselves is yeah. um, can we get more out more energy out of fusion than we put in um this is the 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 basic element it's called break even um so can we have break even with fusion what the if we could break even with fusion we could get more energy out than we put in what the if? And scientists have been asking themselves that for a long time. I believe they worked on this one, this particular facility for 60 years. Um, that's probably, yeah, that's right. That's probably how long Lawrence Livermore has been working on, on fusion reactions. Um, and it's one of these weird things where everybody always thought it was right around the corner. Um, so the, the running joke is that fusion mm. power has been 10 years away for 70 years. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. And um, uh, what they did was is uh, quite dramatic. 
Um, so can, can you paint us a picture of the apparatus? So the apparatus um, is about the size of a football stadium. Um, so it's a gigantic wow. building. And most of that space um, is uh, lasers, uh, specifically 192 lasers. <laughs> um, that is the most supervillain sentence. It's, it's the apparatus <laughs> is a giant building and most of it is lasers. <laughs> um, that's kind of what it feels like, amazing. actually, when you walk in, because um, the, the lasers tower over you. Um, and the building is so long that you essentially can't see from one end to the other because there's so many lasers there. Um, oh. now have uh, you been in, have you, have you been in it? Uh, I have. So the, um, when I was a young un, um, the lab I worked at was the, uh, the prototype for the lab that achieved this Lawrence Livermore. Um, so that's when I was, um, uh, an undergraduate at Rochester, at University of Rochester, the Laboratory for Laser Energetics, um, was um, one of these gigantic facilities, and I helped build the lasers. Um, and I had wow. uh, uh, one of my particular roles was I was the smallest person on the team, so that meant I could crawl through the laser tubes <laughs> to do maintenance and install equipment and things like that. Uh. Um, and I just had to really hope that nobody would turn wow. on the laser while I was in there. Um. <laughs> oh, man. I feel like that's like the most Victorian era boy, like chimney sweep <laughs> <Yeah>. thing, <laughs> except complete. <laughs> <laughs> um, Baffling for the case of physics. Yeah, it was, um, it was an Jimmy interesting the experience. Sweep. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, actually, because a lot of it did involve cleaning. Um, uh, because I say the lasers are so powerful that if there's a speck of dust um, in the laser tubes, that speck of dust will explode. It'll even it absorbs a tiny bit of the laser energy, but that's enough to to explode wow. and, and wreck the whole system. Um, so you had to be really careful about stuff like that. Um, One uh, thing that the uh, the the uh, the guy who is in charge of the uh, lasers, mm -hmm. uh, the head person in charge of the lasers said during the press conference was, they said, uh, what did you do? You know, what was your role during the uh, experiment? And he said, basically, he says, my role, or, or they said, how did you first, sorry, how did you first hear about the, you know, the success of the experiment? And he said, well, I did what I do after every experiment. I woke up, checked my email, and made sure that the lasers hadn't, nothing had gone wrong with the lasers that ruined the entire experiment. Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> that's oh, that's, yeah. Uh, yeah. that's what it comes <laughs> down to. Um, so yeah. once everything is running properly, um, they're what are called pulse lasers. So they're not continuous ones like what um, you play with your cats with, um, but rather they charge up a huge mm. amount of energy and then you flick the switch um, and all that energy gets released in one gigantic pulse. Of, of laser energy. And wow. then you direct that pulse down onto a tiny little blob of hydrogen, um, specifically a flavor of hydrogen called um, deuterium and tritium. Uh, and then the, the combination of the pressure and the energy from the lasers causes fusion in that tiny little pellet. So the pellet is um, uh, very small, like the, the size of the tip of um, a pen. 
Um, so there's this fantastic amount of energy concentrated onto this tiny little spot. Um, and then you get a blast of um, fusion. That little bit of deuterium and tritium, tritium fuses into helium uh, and releases um, a lot of energy, most of it in the form of um, neutron radiation. Yeah. And they said, they, they described it as literally, it's just like a, a pop. Yep. <laughs> That's right. the entire thing. It's like a pop. But that's about right. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. so if you were standing in the room, um, you know, you wouldn't be very healthy, uh, after afterwards, um, but you wouldn't see or hear anything yeah. in particular. Um, and you, you have these sophisticated right. pieces of equipment to measure how much energy was released. And then you have to sit down and do the math and figure out if you got more energy out than you did in. Um, and it turned out we finally got it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so some and some of the things that they described. Was, uh, one thing was that uh, for uh, far less than a nanosecond, um, the pellet is the brightest thing on the planet, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, that's probably about that's right. Actually, yeah, um, it's uh, uh, yeah. For, so it's for a very short period of time, um, generates a, a huge amount of energy. Yeah, and that's the. This is part of the problem is we, we did get more energy out than we put in, but it's just for this short period of time. Um, so the total amount of energy released is about the same as, a, as about a kilowatt hour, which is enough to run your house for like an hour. Um, it's, uh, so, so it's a good start, um, but we need to make it um, happen faster and have the reaction last longer. Yeah. To, to make an actual energy production. Yeah. And I'm assuming this is more complicated than just bigger fuel pellet. That um, that's right. Yeah, this is the, the trick is actually um, bigger is worse because um, it's harder to manipulate. Um, oh. it's, it's actually an implosion of the fuel pellet that causes the, the fusion reaction. So you have to have it perfect. You have to have the implosion perfectly symmetric. Um, or the hydrogen just squirts out one side instead of turning into helium. Um, so bigger pellets are harder to do that with because uh, you have to make it perfectly smooth, like smoother than any object human beings have ever made before. Um, and that actually seemed to be the, yep. uh, the determining factor for the big jump um, in efficiency that we saw last week was making it even, even smoother and more symmetric. So... I mean, maybe this is a, a dumb question, but say like we, we can all of a sudden, you know, make fuel pellets like crazy and you could just, even though it's, you know, maybe slow, you can just kind of keep lining them up. Mm -hmm. But there's an energy cost in making the fuel pellets. Like that's on yes. its own an extremely intensive process. Uh, it what is. goes into refining those things so they are so perfectly smooth and so perfectly symmetrical? Yeah, so the the smooth and symmetry problem is, um, as you say, tedious, but you can imagine that being mechanized. Right now, it's kind of an mm -hmm. art. Like, there's half a dozen people at the lab who have a little, like, hobbit hole where they, they, they go in and they spend a week making a pellet and, you know, nobody sees them and then they emerge with the pellet. Um, it's, that it's sounds kind about of, right. It's kind of a religious ritual. <laughs> They're like, okay, the pellet is ready. Um, but yeah. even filling the pellet is tricky because um, the fuel is hydrogen and that's the most abundant substance in the universe. So you might intuitively say, well, that's a great 
energy source. And that's true. Um, the problem is that we use these isotopes of hydrogen, uh, deuterium and tritium, um, which are quite rare. And it takes uh, a lot of work to so if you take a bucket of seawater, um, you might get one or two atoms of tritium out of that. Um, so that takes a lot of work to actually get the stuff in the first place. Uh, and as you say, there's an energy cost there. Um, and then there's the energy cost of actually making the pellet. Um, and then there's the energy cost of running the lasers, which is because the, the lasers themselves are not 100% efficient. In fact, they're very inefficient. Um, so there's a whole lot of energy costs before you even get to the calculation of did the fusion reaction release more energy than the lasers put in? Um, and that's, you know, that's true for any energy source, right? Getting petroleum out of the ground costs energy and then it costs energy to get it from, from place to place and so on. Um, so there's a sense in which the break-even announcement is of scientific interest, but not economic, right? We're not, we're not building commercial uh, fusion power so, plants. So, you know, we're still like soon. 10 years away from that. That's right. <laughs> probably for another 70 years, I would guess. Um, uh, because right now, like like nobody knows actually how to harness the energy produced in this process in a useful way. Um, that's like that has yeah. not been. Because <laughs> basically everything always comes down to boiling water. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Like most of our other yeah. power sources are just advanced ways to boil water. Yeah. Do you think it'd still go with that or, or somehow like the, the neutron radiation is not? Um, you could, maybe. right? So as you say, nuclear power plants that are existing today are still just fancy water boiling plants. Um, and that's yeah. inefficient for all sorts of reasons. So it would be nice if we could kind of skip that. Um, I don't know of any way to turn neutron radiation directly into electricity, though. So, yeah, I suspect we probably will just be boiling water mm -hmm. with it, too. Um and I don't know, I just find that kind of hilarious that we have these fantastically sophisticated systems um, that really come down to just making tea. Um, it's, uh, it's just, <laughs> yeah. That's just kind of yeah. staggering yeah. to me. <laughs> but if we f yeah. figure out how to do yeah, that, okay. how, how do we boil water with our neutron radiation? Um, then, and we figure out how to um, harvest tritium efficiently and make the pellets fast, um, then we have an energy source that produces no carbon emissions and no radioactive waste. Um, uh, and even if it's a little tricky getting the fuel, it is essentially limitless. You know, we're, we're going to run out of fossil fuels someday. We will never run out of tritium. Um, that's, that's the, the heat death of the universe is when we run out of tritium. Um, so we're okay for at least billions of years on that. And... This is just like a, a weird question I was thinking of. Can you like harvest the output helium? Because helium's a mm -hmm. rare resource and yeah. it's, we're kind of running out of it. Um, yeah, so that would probably be a nice side hustle for fusion power plants is, is selling off the helium, I think. <laughs> um, that would be, I don't know, it'd be kind of an interesting calculation how much, um, how much economic value you would get in that helium. Um, yeah, that would be pretty cool. And then you can also do a kind of recycling too, um, which is that you can fuse um, helium into bigger atoms as well. So if you've got an efficient fusion power plant working, um, you can do kind of a stage two uh, where you fuse the helium into boron. Um, and that would be pretty nifty. Oh, hmm. interesting. Yeah. Now, how, I, how come we use... Uh, 
tritium instead of just the right, like you mentioned, oh, in the bucket of water, you only have one mm -hmm. atom of this tritium. Um, why not? Why can we not just use the regular? Uh, um, it's dramatically easier uh, to make the fusion reaction happen. Um, so it goes like this. Um, if you, I don't know, everybody pick an object near you and um, smack it with your hand. Got it. All right. Presumably your hand did not go through that yeah. object, right? Um, and the reason it didn't go through right. that object <laughs> is uh, the electrostatic forces of the particles in your hand repel uh, the particles in the object you hit. I hit my desk. I don't know what you guys hit. Um, mug. Mug. Okay, good choice. Yeah. Assuming the mug survived, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. It's, so this is true all the way down to individual particles. So if you take two um, uh, hydrogen nuclei, that's just a proton each, and you fling the protons at each other, the same thing happens with the protons that happened with your hand on the mug. Um, they get repelled by the electrostatic forces, and they bounce off each other. So if you want them to fuse, they have to be able to touch. So there's this weird quantum phenomena called quantum tunneling, um, in which a particle can kind of jump through those force fields and appear on the far side. So on the macroscopic level, um, if your hand quantum tunneled through your mug, uh, it would just pass through cleanly. Or if you quantum tunneled through your chair, you would suddenly find yourself on the floor. And that's, there's a non-zero chance that that's going to happen at any given time. Um, but of course, it's very small because mm. you never see that happening. Um, but it becomes faster. The, um, the probability of that happen, happening is much more likely if the particle is small or the thing involved is small and if it's moving very fast. Um, so the, and then you want to have as much mass in one place as possible to make the, the tunneling most efficient. So, uh, it's easier to get the quantum tunneling with single particles. And in the case of fusion, essentially one particle is quantum tunneling inside the other, and then the fusion occurs. Uh, so all that is to say, um, there's a, a, a finite, there's a number that you can calculate. How, how often will this happen? If you fling two hydrogen atoms at each other, how often will they tunnel into each other and fuse? Um, and it so happens that the, the number you, and then if you add a neutron, into the heel into the hydrogen you get deuterium um, and the, the tunneling probability about doubles and then if you add another neutron to that uh, then you have tritium so that's one proton and two neutrons um, and the tunneling probability is about 10 times uh, it is before uh, it was for just a naked hydrogen atom um, so it so happens that these tiny proportions of hydrogen are the ones that do most of the energy generation. And then the regular hydrogen atoms kind of just come along for the ride. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so cool. I'm surprised they left that mm -hmm. out of the story. The, I mean, the tritium? A little bit to explain, but like it's mm -hmm. really, yeah. Or just the quantum tunneling part is really pretty cool. It is pretty cool, like actually. It's, it's kind of neat to think that at the center yeah. of our sun, there's, there's trillions of quantum tunnelings going on in any given second. Um, yeah. Just particles passing like into each other. It feels like you're exploiting some kind of like video game glitch. Like if you time yeah. it at the right <laughs> moment, you can clip through the yeah. floor, which That's sends right. you upward with a velocity like much That's greater right. than well. you can generate yourself. Basically the same thing with That's tritium. Right. 
Yeah. I think that's actually a pretty good analogy. I I, I quite like that actually. <laughs> I'm very glad. <laughs> you know, like, me like you said, when when you yeah you half clip through the wall and you can kind of see what's on the other side, but you're not supposed to. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think quantum tunneling is a lot like that too. In, in the same sense that it is a bug, but it's replicable. Um, so you know that if in the game you always stand on this particular mushroom, you can always get through that corner. Um, in the real world, right. if you right. always get the tritium in the right place, you can get around solid objects <laughs> and, and get in there. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a bug, it's a feature. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, this, this description is just reminding me of like the Bethesda plate hack in Skyrim or whatever, where you could just put a plate underneath you, grab it, and fly. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds good. Um, yeah, so we've been so we've so, spent seventy years trying to get that bug under control, and now we got it. Yeah, you know, yeah. a phrase like that, I understand why it took so long. <laughs> like, because yeah. you kind of are game logicing the laws of physics. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I feel like it's a little bit easier to do that to like a team of devs at Nintendo as opposed to uh, God. <laughs> but it's also it's it's fascinating to imagine this football stadium-sized building with giant lasers, you know, all focused on creating the glitch down at this incredibly tiny, tiny spot in the center of the stadium. You know, we're going we're gonna to glitch the universe mm-hmm. right there. Um, so I've got to ask, right? If mm-hmm. you are the scientist there, I assume your first step is to prove you can do it again. Um, because you always got to do it multiple times to show that it exists. But what's the next step after that? They're like, sorry, okay, we sorry, can reliably I lost, I get lost, this. Sorry, I lost your sound for a minute. Can you go back if you're a scientist? Oh, you okay. glitched out. Yeah. You glitched out. Yeah. <laughs> I said, you know, if you're a scientist, right, the first thing you're going to do is do it again to yeah. basically yeah, just yeah. show that, you know, you can, it, it wasn't a fluke. It wasn't that much of a glitch mm-hmm. that you can you can keep getting this happening reliably but after right. you've shown that like what's your next step like how do you try to like do you try to beef this up do you try to make it more efficient um that's a good question so um were i the folks in charge i would want to um first figure out how to do it um more often all right so it takes about a day to set up a shot mm-hmm. um and about a week to make one of the pellets so I would want to figure out how to do it maybe every minute. Right. That might be pretty good um, because I need to, because my problem, if I want to use this for energy production is to scale it up so I can scale. I probably don't want to make it bigger in the physical sense because it's already huge. So I need to scale it up in terms of time and frequency. Um, so that's what I would go for. Um, I suspect what they will do is to try to get even more energy out per shot, though, um, because that's cooler. Like that's mm-hmm. a that, that, that's more of a thing you can mm-hmm. brag about um, in the the scientists' <laughs> lounge. Um, uh, whereas the engineers, the people who want to build the power plants, will start thinking about frequency um, and time, and they probably want to make it smaller too. Uh, you know, can we do it with? 160 lasers instead of 192 lasers. Um, Because if we're building this outside every town in the U.S., uh, we want it smaller and more efficient as well. Um, So actually, it'll be interesting to see which route they go. Are they going to go towards uh, actual energy production or just towards more scientific records? I think they said they were going for more power. 
Okay. Of more energy coming okay. out. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, um, and the lab is yeah. kind of set up that way too, um, to, to crank more energy, mm -hmm. to put more energy in and get more energy out per shot. Um, you'd probably have to design it, right. you'd start rebuilding it from the ground up to make it faster um, and more reliable too. Right. Now, do you know the difference between this facility and it seems like there's something... So it seems like another huge step forward is happening in France. Uh, in France, they have the Joint European Taurus, the the Jet, um, which is the uh, which is the largest fusion lab in the world. But it uses a totally different principle. Um, this is the the ones that use the tokamak that I alluded to earlier. So it's a giant magnetic mm -hmm. donut. Um, uh, in which they try to constrict, they try to force the hydrogen together with with magnetic fields instead of with lasers. Um, and I should say they're probably a little bitter this week um, that they got scooped ah. by uh, by Livermore. Um, there's 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 deep as with yeah. any scientific fields, there's deep divisions between different methodological approaches to the the same thing. Um, and the difference between lasers right. and and tokamak approaches is is deep seated and actually goes way back into the the Cold War. Um, right. So did the did the Livermore achievement give them? You know, did it demonstrate something that? Probably not. I mean, it, demonst it demonstrated that break-even is possible, which is good. Um, uh, but they're, uh, uh, they're completely different physical principles and approaches. Um, so it's not like the French can send spies to Livermore to, to learn the technical secrets and bring them back <laughs> to, to France. Um, it's a totally different approach. And it may well be that... Um, the JET never achieves break-even. That's that's totally possible. <laughs> it, uh, it may be a completely failed approach. Uh, I was going to ask that, like whether or not it's mm -hmm. possible that both approaches eventually demonstrate break-even, or there's going to probably only be like very limited paths to to fusion, mm -hmm. or only one um, thing works. Yeah, and that's a sort of a profound question about technological development generally is should you put all your eggs in one basket? You know, do you figure out the likely best way to do it and toss all of your resources into that? Or do you try half a dozen different approaches, hoping that one of them will work better than the others and you'll be able to kind of bootstrap yourself up? Mm -hmm. um, and it's really not obvious. And this is a great example of that <laughs> um, mm -hmm. because I'm sure because the, the Europeans aren't going to shut down their tokamak because uh, Livermore did a good job with lasers. They're going to keep trying to work on their system too, because you know nobody wants to waste a billion dollars um, on their system. <clears throat> um, and we'll um, so we'll see how that goes. And and weirdly, the tokamak would actually be much better for energy production in the long term if you can make it work um, because the the laser system gives you that sudden pulse of energy um, but the tokamak system is continuous so once you get it running it'll just keep running for as long as you want so that's obviously much better for for energy production so in a weird way we right, succeeded right. with the less efficient choice um, hmm. yeah. yeah yeah i mean it would be it it, it 
What would a power plant, imagine a power plant designed around the uh, Livermore uh, laser setup. What would a power mm-hmm. plant look like? Um, if it's the like same... you have to have... The, pe- the, the pellets <laughs> would be like a machine, like a... Like a string of pellets, like a machine gun. Um, right? Yeah, like a machine gun. That's right. They would be shot into the the target chamber, um, and then blasted with lasers. And then, as soon as that energy, as soon as that fusion reaction clears, you would shoot another pellet in, and you would blast it again. Um, and hopefully, you'd, you're doing that several times a second, actually. Um, so yeah, so you would be, there would be this constant stream of, of stuff, um, of, of pellets being shot in and then blasted with lasers. Um, uh, and that would be pretty fun to watch from a safe distance. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, fusion reactor Gatling gun was not on my bingo card. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it will eventually. Right. Um, and that's, you know, actually that's kind of, we don't often think of it this way, but that's how internal combustion engines run in our cars, as we think of them as running oh. continuously. But actually they're constantly, uh-huh. um, it, it's, a, it's a steady stream of constant explosions inside uh, your engine. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So when you yeah. see like RPMs on your car, that's the number of cycles of these individual explosions um, that are driving your car. So presumably the fusion reactors would be an analogy to that, um, that nonstop um, uh, production. Yeah. So we're not reinventing the wheel here exactly. We're just making a new fancy physics break. Fancier engine. wheel. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's right. much newer um, fancier. Yeah. Uh, unless somebody figures out a good way to capture neutron radiation um, uh, and make it efficient. Yeah, that would be. Um, uh, so I don't. I, it's hard for me to, the, the amount of investment, both sort of monet, in terms of money and time and ingenuity, it would take to make this uh, a reliable day-to-day system um, is huge. Um, and it's probably worth doing in the long run. But like for the next 10 years, we want to be building solar panels and wind farms. Um, this is not going mm. to replace that mm. anytime soon. Mm. Uh, I suspect where this will be particularly cool is actually uh, space exploration um, in that space is full of hydrogen. Um, and like the surface of the moon, for instance, is covered in um, helium-3, which is an isotope of, of helium that, that fuses easily. So uh, obviously wind farm, not such a great idea on the surface of the moon, um, but a fusion, that might be a great place to run a fusion reactor because there's lots of... Um, uh, heavy isotopes laying around for us to, to work with. So I suspect maybe that would be the thing. I, I, in a hundred years, I imagine our energy mix here on the surface of the earth will be some mixture of renewables um, and fusion, and that would be pretty great. Yeah. Now, the the uh, jumping ahead to this future where we have fusion everywhere, mm-hmm. um, what, one of the things that seemed incredible about it was that it has... Little or no waste, right? Yeah, the right. the waste is helium. Doesn't, for instance, doesn't have nuclear waste. Mm-hmm. The waste is helium, right? So nothing but per- parade balloons. Yes, yeah, right. Nonstop. Yeah, as Gabby said, the, that that uh, could be worth uh, a fair bit of yeah. money. 
Um, it does yeah. the that pulse of neutron radiation. The, the way we have it set it up, set up right now, is that neutron radiation um, floods through the target chamber, and basically anything made of um, metal in the target chamber becomes briefly radioactive as the as the neutron radiation comes through. Uh-huh. So um, there's a, a crew of unhappy physicists who have to go in after every shot and scrub down all of the newly radioactive material um, uh, and then put it in big barrels. And I, I, I have to say, this is the, the reason that I um, uh, accidentally sat on some radioactive waste uh, because I went into the target <laughs> chamber once while I was waiting to meet somebody and I just sat down on this this barrel, um, and somebody turns to me and they say, Matt, you know that barrel's full of radioactive waste, right? And I said, no, I didn't know the barrel was full of radioactive waste. Um, and then 10 years later, I had identical twins, so there may or may not be some connection um, to that there. Uh, who are doing fine. That's who are doing great. That's right. They, they, were, they got superpowers from that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so basically, the, the neutron radiation gradually destroys all of the equipment in the chamber, um, and that equipment uh, is itself slightly radioactive. So the reaction doesn't produce radioactive waste, but is kind of a side effect. Um, you get some, but if we figure out a way to capture the neutrons for energy production, then that's probably a, a solvable problem too. Um, but yeah, basically, you- yeah, no more pollution. Yeah. Dumb, weird question. Could you, I mean, could you use the neutron stuff to generate more like heavy water to get back oh, out? Oh, to get the more, the, uh, more tritium and deuterium? Um, yeah. yeah, that's um, irradiating hydrogen to artificially make um, isotopes is hard because its density is so low. Um, but at least in principle, that would be a good way to capture some of those neutrons, I think. Um, so this would be fun. So me having half a second of like a puzzle thought, I'd be like, wait, neutrons, that makes isotopes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Connecting my basic high school physics. No, this college. is good. Um, <laughs> generally, it's right the, the easiest way to get yeah. tritium and deuterium um, is just with um, uh, gigantic centrifuges, actually. So the if water molecules that have deuterium instead of hydrogen in them um, are slightly heavier. Um, so if you whirl a centrifuge fast enough, your deuterium water goes to the edge and we call that heavy water. Um, and that's used in various obscure industrial and scientific applications. Um, but actually early in the nuclear age during World War II, there was some thinking that uh, heavy water was the would be a good way to build a nuclear reactor um, and therefore produce um, uranium and plutonium. Um, so, uh, and it so happened that so early, as soon as the, the Manhattan Project gets going and they're worried that the Nazis are going to build an atomic bomb, they start looking around and they realize that essentially the only large scale heavy water plant in the world was in Norway, um, which was under the control of the Nazis at the time. Um, it's under German occupation. So there's this fantastic story of uh, Norwegian special forces um, uh, being trained in Britain and then reinvading Norway to blow up the uh, the heavy water power plant there. I think there was a movie made about this. I'd have to track it down. Um, but and that's actually one of the the ways that the Nazis realized that um, 
the Allies were working on a nuclear bomb was they said, oh, the only the only uh, reason they would want to destroy the heavy water power plant is if they're thinking about a, a nuclear weapon. Interesting. That is really cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so I, I do have one more question, right? So, yeah. I mean, you mentioned that the, the helium can be used, refused again, and that makes boron. But I assume there's going to be like a diminishing returns, right? Because the there bigger the indeed. thing is, yeah. the harder the quantum tunneling is. So, <laughs> like, where would that line end? So, this is um, this is a, a pretty cool thing. So, this is how stars uh, work, right? So, stars take the hydrogen, they build it into helium, they build the helium into bigger um, uh, atoms. And as you say, at each step, there's diminishing returns until you get to... Um, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, um, atoms of about that size. And then this cool thing happens called the CNO cycle, where individual hydrogen atoms will kind of whack into um, sort of in sequence carbon, nitrogen, oxygen atoms um, and make bigger atoms, but leaving behind the, the catalysts, as it were. So the carbon becomes sort of a, a catalyst. So then you get this self-sustaining reaction um, uh, where hydrogen is converted into bigger molecules in kind of a steady state way. So big stars, um, uh, sort of like, like giant, giant stars, um, will get to this point where they just cook along on the they, they start cooking hydrogen hydrogen turns into helium and that's kind of a struggle um, but then once they get going once they get to the carbon phase um, then they cook along for billions of years um, at this steady energy mm. production rate but then eventually they will actually run out of fuel uh, and for giant stars this happens quite suddenly um, so once they run out of hydrogen, then all they have left is the bigger atoms. Um, so they cook through those. So then carbon starts turning into uh, bigger and bigger atoms and eventually gets to iron. And once they get to iron, there's no more energy return for fusion. Um, and then suddenly the star is out of fuel and it collapses because it can't hold it. Doesn't, it can't produce the temperatures it needs to hold itself up anymore. And then you get a supernova. Um, and what's what's kind of extraordinary is that this happens in a matter of hours. So like the sun is doing f fine, it's just cruising along, doing its thing, and then all of a sudden it checks its pockets and it's like, oh, no more hydrogen, um, better start burning helium. And it's like, oh, no more helium, better start burning carbon. And then all of a sudden it's like, ah, I got nothing but iron left. I'm out of here. Um, uh, and then it explodes. <laughs> just like me when I can't find my keys. That's, that's pretty much it. Yeah, that's like devastating everything fun. around you. Yeah. Uh, so that would be our and eventual that, and fate. That is where yeah. all. Yeah, and that is where all the elements in the universe come from. Um, that is right. So all of the all of the carbon that is in you right now um, was cooked in a fusion cycle in the belly of some star. Yeah. A billion years ago. Uh, and then that star died yep. and hurled it out into the cosmos and that eventually settled down and turned into you and Oreos. Right. All, all of that. All of that <laughs> yeah. came the from two, a fusion two reaction. two most critical building blocks <laughs> yes. of everything. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. 
So we we're likely sure. not going to get to the iron stage of fusion. We will not, right? But mm. you could, uh, that would be a, a, a interesting, va you know, human civilization lasts for a billion years and we managed to cook through all of the deuterium and tritium we have on the planet. So then we start cooking through regular hydrogen um, and then we use that up. Um, and then, yeah, eventually we get to this point where there's just nothing that can be fused on our planet anymore. Um, and then if, if I know humans, we will then go find another planet and start using up their hydrogen too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, in, in the, uh, in, in the utopian future mm. to wrap up, what's, uh, we've got this, we've suddenly got this, um, no polluting or, you know, very little. I have to. I always feel reluctant to say no polluting because there's got to be some kind of pollution coming in, in the, the process, you know. But um, uh, you know, this extremely low pollution form of energy. What are are we literally? What, what are, are we actually heading to? Some utopian thing? Like what happens when this becomes? Yeah, I mean, it's. I'm, I, I am generally reluctant to go all utopia. Um, and maybe I'm just biased because of my personal connection to the field. Um, but if we do have actual functioning fusion power plants, then that is, as you say, effectively no pollution. Um, the, uh, you get the fuel from seawater. So it's not like there's one place on Earth that can monopolize that resource. So that's pretty great. Um, right. Right. You could imagine that By maybe the way, just, the, I just want to... <laughs> I just want to focus on that one point for everyone, make sure we, people understand that, that this radically, radically shifts the economy of, of fuel. Right now, you know, everything depends on where the, whatever countries are the ones that have the place where the fuel, where the oil comes from or whatever, the natural gas, um, you know, have this huge stranglehold on all the other countries. This would no longer be the case. That, that yeah, that would be that would water. be pretty great. All you need is access to to water. Yeah, um, uh, so that would be pretty fantastic. I mean, it's I don't think it's ever going to be small scale. You know, you're never going to have a fusion power. Uh, you're never going to have this kind of fusion reactor in your house the way you can put a solar panel on your roof. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be some centralization. Um, as Gabby pointed out, the fuel production is always going to be. Um, intensive and industrially challenging. Um, so it's not going to be a radically democratizing energy source the way solar power might be. Um, uh, but none, but the, if it's scalable, that's, that's huge, right? We just might not have to worry about these things anymore. Um, was kind of the, the the promise of nuclear power at all 70 years ago that was the promise right is that they you know the the chairman of the atomic energy commission said electricity will become too cheap to meter meaning it won't even be worth charging you money for it um and wow. it would be nice if this might be a first step uh, towards that right mm. amazing mm. yeah all right well thank you matt thank you for this incredible colorful detailed look at the promise of fusion uh some of which has been delivered the first <laughs> the first tiny spark literally spark has been delivered um gabby you have any <laughs> any thoughts as to um what this uh, fusion future holds 
Just in general, that it's really cool. I mean, yeah, of course, there's the caveats that, you know, none of us may actually live to see it <laughs> used practically and, you know, be yeah. the source that's lighting up everyone's homes. But it is neat to see us, like, moving towards that. I mean, I don't know. I'm, like, I'm a jaded 20-something-year-old where, like, <laughs> sometimes you don't really expect that much progress, like, societally. Um, yeah. But it's, like, one of these yeah. things, like, you can't, I feel like it's hard to argue against transitioning to fusion if we ever work our way up to it. Um, And plus, you know, you get so much more helium. Bring back balloons. (laughs) And not feel guilty about it. Party time. Yeah. 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 Do all the scientists get to talk like this afterwards? Oh, yeah. After they have the helium? Um, Matt, any, uh, what are your thoughts about uh, our fusion future? Um. It's potentially huge and fantastically bright, um, but it's at least a generation until we start seeing those sorts of benefits. Um, so let's keep investing in basic research until we uh, figure that stuff out. So call your congressperson. Good point. Yes, always a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, excellent. Any, anything you lo- either of you would like to plug this week? Anything coming up? Gabby, oh. you have a poem coming out? Or? Nope. Nope. Nothing else. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, uh, I hope everyone is doing well. For those of you who are Patreon supporters, uh, first of all, thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, for all your support, uh, patreon.com slash what the if is where you can go to find out more about becoming a member if you're not one. Uh, Patreon members get exclusive post-show discussions, which we'll be having um, so, uh, for after this show, we'll be talking a little bit more and, and only Patreon members will get to hear that discussion. So we always go on a little bit longer about the topic and then we kind of catch up on what's happening in, um, in our lives and things like that. So, uh, if you would like to find out more about that, go to Patreon, patreon.com slash what the if, uh, you can also always just go to our website, what the if.com and you can find all our episodes there. We're also on this crazy thing called Twitter, which all the kids are talking about. It's got this bizarre leader who's gone run amok uh, named Elon Musk. Very exciting fellow. Uh, we are on Twitter at what the if show. So go ahead and check us out there. Um, Gabby, would you uh, help us uh, gather for the closing ritual? I can, although I can't hear the music, Phil. So. <laughs> uh, but As we are staring into the quite literally blindingly bright future of nuclear (laughs) fusion, uh, we are becoming the slightest bit radioactive because we got (laughs) just a little bit too close (laughs) to the gigantic reactor. Uh, And we cannot help but shout in now much, much higher pitched voices from all the helium that is released. (laughs) What? Thank you for listening. That might be our most annoying outro. Yeah. (laughs) We'll see you next week. (laughs) 